Hashem, Hashem, Nasev, and Atzliach, Shio Torah, Hashem, good to be back in Aventura at the Breslov Center. We uh, we missed last week, had uh, some things to deal with at the, at the family front, Baruch Hashem. The uh, little kids get sick very quickly, and uh, new parents get nervous very quickly. Uh, but Baruch Hashem, everything is good now. Uh, also, this year will be to Efwash Lema to Ovadia Ben Levana, Sara Bat Levana, Levana Bat Sara, uh, David Ben Esriya, uh, Doris Bat Jora, uh, and uh, all of Am Israel. Anyone, anyone who mentioned? Noam? Noah. Bat Zeava. And all of Am Israel, Bezot Hashem, will have Refua Shlema, Refua Tanefesh, Refua Taguf. So we continue our series, Baruch Hashem, we're getting more and more people to uh, change their life uh, after uh, watching this series, after watching uh, the Shuet all we've had, whether it be starting their first lecture with my personal story and then eventually getting to this series, uh, or perhaps uh, just people just starting with this series. This Pekavot series is uh, what many have told me has been much more relevant than anything else because it's really... Uh, everything applies to today. So today's Mishnah is uh, nothing different. It uh, probably applies to today even more so than usual, uh, and uh, in um, more ways than we can imagine. So we're now in Mishnah Bet Tetzain, uh, the second uh, part, the second chapter of Perkei uh, Avot, Tetzain number sixteen. And it says, Rabbi Yoshua Omer, Ayn ara, v'yetzer ara, v'sinat abriot, motzi'in et ha'adam in ha'olam. A very, very simple sentence. I think somebody's knocking if you could open it. A very, very simple sentence that uh, another one of uh, Rabban Yochanan's students is uh, saying, as we had in the last uh, shiur that we had, each one of the students, each one of the sages said that they each have Three things that uh, are life lessons for somebody to take in order for them to live a good life. At the request of their Rav, and uh, the last lesson we had was Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkinos started off with the first three things. And now Rabbi Yoshua. Rabbi Yoshua says an evil eye, and the evil inclination and hatred of other people remove a person from the world. Even the literal translation, the very, very simple literal translation of this Mishnah already shows you how applicable it is to today's world. But when you go into the deeper aspect of it, uh, you'll be surprised at how far it goes. Now, first and foremost, when we talk about Ayin most people that have problems in their life in the Jewish world, you tell them, uh, why did you lose your money? Nine out of ten times, religious or not religious, Ainara. Oh, evil eye, then my neighbor looked at me. Since then, I lost my money. My partner asked me how much money I made. Since then, I lost all my money. The government came, took this, took that. The IRS started auditing me. The uh, SEC started. This one started. That one started. Why did you, uh, you know... Why did you? Why do you think you got into an accident? Oh, I got a brand new car. The guy, the uh, you know, my best friend told me nice car. Next thing you know, I crashed. Everyone wants to blame everything on Ainara. Now, even though 
there is definitely an element of truth in that. Um, there is a very, very big element of truth. According to Chazal, Ayin is actually very, very strong. But there is also a different part of Ayin or the root issue of Ayin is not necessarily that someone is trying to bring evil to another person. But rather, the source of it is jealousy. Why do we know that it's not always because someone wants to bring something bad? Because even a person's mother can give him Ainara. Now in most, most normal lives, in most normal relationships, usually the relationship a person has with their mother, the mom's going to love him more than anybody else, more than the father, more than the brothers, more than anybody. It's unconditional, unreasonable, unrational love. The mom loves the kids more than anything in the world. The father says something, if he, if he even raises his voice too much, the mom, shh, tiger. Don't talk to my kids like that. The whole week she's like, you know, little tzedika, quiet, all of a sudden, father said something, oh, shh, oh tiger. Lost an ear. <laughs> father just lost an ear just to make sure he knows, to listen better next time. Don't talk to my kids that way. I remember when I was a kid, three years old, four years old, and uh, yeah, it was probably three years old, three, four years old, something like that. And uh, I went to, uh, I guess it's preschool, I don't know, it's uh, kindergarten, but it's, not, it's before kindergarten, so it's preschool, right? I think it's called preschool. Uh, so I went to preschool, and there was this old lady, old mean lady that was the preschool teacher. And for whatever reason or another, I was very, very small when I was a kid. Something changed, apparently. Uh, and uh, for whatever reason or other, I made her upset. She decided to pull my ear. So I, when I got home, as soon as I got home, I started crying to my mom. My mom, the next morning, went to the teacher. She almost beat her up. Touch my son. Touch my... No, I didn't touch him. Ah, my son doesn't lie. You lie. Tiger. Touch my son. That's it. World War 17. Kill you, your family, your ancestors. I'll go back in the future just to make sure you're never born. Don't touch my kids. So the relationship a boy or a girl has with their mother, something that's beyond logic. And to be honest with you, many times in my life, my uh, most difficult mental battles were trying to understand my own mother. Because I would get into arguments with my brothers. I have three brothers, Baruch Hashem, and we argue about everything. We'd argue about sports, we'd argue about money, we'd argue about anything you could possibly argue, we'd argue about it. And if there wasn't any reason to argue, we'd find something else to argue about. Especially when you're young. And my mom somehow would pick all the sides. Somehow she would, everyone's right. What do you mean? But he just murdered the other guy. No, no, he didn't mean to. What do you mean he didn't mean to? He had a knife. He, he stabbed him. No, the knife fell into his hand. No, no, no. Look, he said, I want to kill him. No, no, he wasn't. He was a joke. He was joking. He didn't mean it. But he said, I'm, I'm planning it. The week he wrote a letter, I'm planning on killing ABC. No, that was just uh, something else. You're not understanding the English he wrote. She'd somehow give us kafschut that's completely irrational. That somehow all of us were right. All of us were right. She loves all of us the same. And it would drive me insane. He's wrong. I'm right. No, pick my side. And the other one says, no, pick my side. 
But somehow she knew how to make peace better than anyone else in the world. Baruch Hashem kept the family together throughout all the difficulties, the ups and downs. As crazy as it drove us, it's the one thing that kept us all together. And again, the root of it was a, something completely that makes no sense whatsoever. But that's a mother's love. Now, that very same mother, not talking about my mother, somebody else's mother, can actually give her own son Aynara. Obviously, it's not on purpose. She loves him. She says, listen, Mabruk, Mazal Tov, you got a new raise in a job, next week you got fired. Oh, Mazal Tov, what a beautiful car you got. Next week, somebody ran into it, smashed the car. Somebody stole it. She didn't mean to do Aynara. She didn't mean to do anything bad. She loves him more than anything in the world. But even a mother can give Aynara to her children. So much so, in regards to the level of Aynara, that a person can give themselves Aynara. A person can give themselves Aynara. This is also, by the way, the reason of why anyone that wants things, if you have something in the works that's big, that's good, whether it's uh, monetary, you have a big deal in the making, or you're about to finish uh, the Shas, you're about to finish the Gemara, you're about to do something big, something meaningful, don't tell anyone. Including yourself. Meaning, don't say it out loud. Don't say, ah, oh, I can't wait until I finish Masechet, uh, whatever Gemara you're up to. I can't wait. Uh, you say it out loud, just for just want to talk to yourself. You, just, you know, if you have no one to talk to, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, you want to talk to yourself. Don't say it. Your wife asks you, where are you going? You know, you're going to the cola to go learn. Don't say I'm going to the cola to go learn. I'm going to my friends. I'm going to see my friends. She knows where you're going, obviously, because or else she's going to hang you right next to the statue that <laughs> the next door neighbor has. But don't say I'm going to learn. Why? Because Satan's going to come and interfere. You have a big deal in the making? Don't tell anyone. Keep it to yourself. Until it's finished. Once the deal is finished, you can tell your wife, but that's it. Don't tell the rest of the world. Including your brothers, your sisters, anyone, your parents, anyone. I'm telling you, it's not, it's not something that's against anyone's parents, or brothers, or loved ones. It's actually for their best interest. To keep your life, not necessarily secret, but contained. Because the more you publicize things, even if it's a mitzvah, you start telling people, listen, I planned that as soon as I made, I don't know, $300,000, $400,000 in a year, I was going to invest and buy a Sefer Torah. You tell people, and I made, last year I made double that, I made $700,000. So I'm going to go do a Sefer Torah. It takes a year, You go if you have it from the beginning to end, you have to, it takes a year approximately to write a Sefer Torah. So you tell people, oh, I'm going to go have a Sefer Torah written. Big mistake. Big, big mistake. Even if the Sefer Torah comes to fruition, Bezat Hashem, and you end up donating it, you'll see that how much problems came to you as a result of you publicizing to the world, or even to one person, that you are doing a big mitzvah. So, one of the main things in regards to Ayin is that one of the main causes of it is jealousy. 
One time there was a guy that bought a uh, one of these uh, four by four jeeps, brand new four by four jeeps. Always wanted this car, and one day he was able to afford it. Went into the lot, paid for the whole thing cash, sixty thousand dollars. Brand new jeep. Comes home, he's happy with his jeep. The whole world could be collapsing. He's got his jeep. He's happy. He just looks outside the window, he sees the 4x4, he becomes happy again. Life was worth living just for this 4x4. You know, some people love their car more than they love their wife. He sees wife screaming, kids are yelling, the dog just made himself at home in the kitchen. He has a kid, he's got this 4x4 outside. He's looking at it. Next morning... Excited to go to work to tell all of his buddies about his 4x4 car. As soon as he gets to the car, his world ends. What happens? He sees 4x4, you know, 4x4, and someone engraved on his car with a knife equals 16. You know, 4 times 4 equals 16. Someone was so jealous. They had to ruin it. Is there four times four? Sixteen. Thought he was a smart guy. You know, one of these smart people. The guy miskeh. What Tisha B'av? Yesterday was Independence Day. Today is Tisha B'av. He goes and skips work. Goes to the car lot. Says you got to fix this. No, that painted. No problem. We'll take care of it today. He goes to work. Comes back at the end. Everything looks brand new. Comes home, he's happy. Back to happiness. The next morning, four times four equals sixteen. He's losing his mind. Goes back to the lot. He's like, apparently, one of these Rishayim neighbors that I have is so jealous, he doesn't let me enjoy my four by four. What should I do? He goes, why don't you be smart? And just do it for him. Listen, he's engraving with a knife, ruining the paint and everything. Equals 16. Why don't you just get a piece of metal, the same way that the 4x4 silver looks like. Get a piece of metal with the equal sign. Get a piece of metal for the 16. That's it. So he has nothing to engrave. Because you know what? You're a genius. That's what we're going to do. He goes, okay, listen, it's going to be extra money. No problem. Just do it. Whole day's job. They, ta, ta, they fix it. He comes home, 4 by 4 equals 16. He's back to his happiness. He's back to pooling. Next morning, Shem he sees the biggest engraving yet. 4 times 4 equals 16 is what he has. And then he says, Exactly! The point being is that when someone is jealous, when someone sees another person have something that they want, or they feel like they're entitled to, they can't live with themselves so long as someone has it. The Rambam in his, in his uh, commentary on Pirkei Avot says that the root of an evil eye is a burning desire for money. 
craving for material pleasure and an unfriendly approach these are all sicknesses that lead to depression he calls it marash khora literally means a black gallbladder like a black gallbladder secretion and this leads a person to despise seeing other people to a point where he hates them for no reason he doesn't even know the guy he sees the guy has a brand new 4x4 he hates him the guy is 28 years old got a job guy is making a decent living just got married guy doesn't even know him he's 31 years old not married he hates him now Why do you hate him? What did he do to you? He's a Jew, you're a Jew. He wears a kippah, you wear a kippah. He goes to Beknesset, you go to Beknesset. Why? Because he's 28 and he got married and you're still alone? It's not his fault. Why? He's got it. He decided you're not going to be married. He hates him. These people end up preferring solitude. They prefer to be alone. which will eventually bring them to ruin this inner hatred creates such anger inside the person that not only is it something that hurts the other people with their evil eye and their jealousy but it ends up killing the person himself that has this evil eye In the Gemara, Baba Batra, page 2b, it says a man is not allowed to stand over a field of his friend and admire it. Your friend has a field, your friend just bought a brand new property, and he's inviting you. He's inviting you to come see my brand new property. That's what usually people do. They go buy a lot in the middle of nowhere. They think it's going to be in the next Times Square. What do they do? They bring, hey, look, I bought 37 acres for $2,000 an acre. It's going to be $10 million an acre one day. So what does he want to do? He wants to invite everybody. Hey, look, look my, you know, it's this boy from high school. Brings his friend from high school. Look what I bought. $74,000. Watch, one day it's going to be worth $74 million. Big mistake. Kamalaz says... That person that came, obviously the person that invited him is making a mistake for inviting Ayinara to his life. But the person that came, he's not allowed to look. He's not allowed to look and admire his friend's field. Why? Because his eye can hurt it. He can look at it, admire it, and cause damage from his eye. It's like I told you guys the joke, I think it was a couple of weeks ago. Two guys known for having Ayinara sitting next to each other. One guy says, you see that new bridge? As soon as he says, you see that new bridge? Bridge collapsed. Hashem Elachim. The other guy says, wow, what an eye you have. Boom, his eye popped out. <laughs> But that's evil eye. Gemara Baba Metziah, page 38. It says something, Mamash, if you think about it, it's scary. Of how... Dangerous evil eyes. It says, if somebody finds a talit, a piece of clothing, you know, it happens sometimes somebody 
leaves their talit in the Beknesset, or they leave it in a store, or a piece of clothing, a jacket, or something. People lose stuff all the time. Now in Judaism, unlike other religions, we have an obligation. If we know who it belongs to, we have an obligation to return it. If it's another Jew, you have to return it. If it's not a Jew, you do not have to return it. But if you do return it, it can be Kiddush Hashem, which is the biggest mitzvah in Judaism. So the Gemara says, if somebody finds a talit, a piece of clothing, he's not allowed to spread it open and show it to the world and say, hey, hey, is this jacket, this talit, this dress belong to anybody? Not allowed to do it. Why? Because the admiration of the people, if they see it's a nice talit, it's a nice dress, it's a nice jacket, can cause damage to the owner from their evil eye. It's Gemara. It's Mount Sinai. The Chazonish, Zeret Tzadik Livracha, says that one of the mysteries of creation is the ability of a man to unleash hidden forces in everyday existence merely by his intellect. His thought process alone can cause physical things to be destroyed. As in this Mishnah, a person experiences excessive agitation over other successful people, and covets their item, which is do not covet, is one of the Ten Commandments, you're not allowed to do that. He wants them, he's jealous. He sees the other guy just got married. Even if he doesn't want his wife, but he wants a wife, and he's jealous that his friend got married, how much damage he can cause them. This is also part of the reason why it's not advisable to maintain close friendship with single people if you just got married. It's not advisable. I've never met a single person that's happy. New couples usually are happy. This is not exactly the uh, ideal situation, unless you know they're serious people. They're going to get married soon. But in general, you should find other couples. Couples should be with couples, singles with singles, because also the mindset of a person when he's single or she's single is different than a married couple. Create a lot of different issues, and also it's not exactly a great idea to bring your single girlfriend to your house for your husband to look at. Because despite how much of a tzaddik he is, he still has a yetzerah. And she has a yetzerah. This is also why there's a mitzvah of yichud. You're not allowed, a man is not allowed to be alone with another woman that's not his wife. Unless it's a place that's public, where anybody can come in and go. If there's an office, there's other people coming and going, they're allowed to be, allowed to meet. But if, no, if everyone left, everyone left, the whole company left, she's the CEO. He's one of the employees. Not allowed to be together. He's scared. She's 87 years old. He's 20. It's never going to happen. Not allowed. Not allowed. The Chazoni says by him coveting these items by him being jealous of his friend's wife him being jealous of his friend's car 
her being jealous of her friend's husband, her being jealous of her friend's kids. The Chazoni says, they place these things in extreme danger. So, sakanat nefashot. Now, the question is, what is the root cause of Ainara? Ainara, we see already that it comes from jealousy. So what's the cause? Oh, everything has, there's a cause, there's an effect. What gets a person to a point where they feel an overwhelming feeling of jealousy? Being jealous of another person. He has a car, you don't have a car. He has a job, you don't have a job. He knows the whole shots by heart, you don't even know Parashat Bereshit by heart. You're jealous. Now in the Torah... You're allowed to be jealous for the purpose of learning, meaning being competitive. You're jealous that the other guy knows the entire uh, Gemara by heart, or entire parasha by heart, or even just the entire prayer by heart, and you don't, but that's going to lead you to study harder, you're allowed. But if you're purely jealous that he has it and you don't, it's not allowed. It's 100% sin. Just like it's a sin to eat pork, it's a sin to be jealous. But it's much worse. Why? Eat pork, you have a sin in Shemaim, you're going to pay for it one day in Gehenom. But being jealous, you don't wake up during the resurrection of the dead. It's a much bigger problem being jealous. But what's the root pro- What's the root cause of why would you ever be jealous? No, anyone's going to take a guess? Well, one for one already, I didn't even have to ask the question. Supposed to get like three, four wrong, and I'm supposed to get the right answer. See, my, my, my students are not supposed to be students. That's exactly it. The only reason why someone has even one ounce of jealousy is a result of lack of emunah in Hashem Barach. But such lack of emunah that it gets to a point of kfira. Why kfira? Why heresy? Believing that Hashem exists, even a monkey knows Hashem exists. You don't need to necessarily be a brilliant person to know Hashem exists. Hashem created every being, every human being, with an element of emunah. We are a believing species. Even the atheists have a belief. They believe in not believing. Like the guy that I was arguing with yesterday, he's trying to debate me, and... His belief is no belief. And what's the argument? We actually couldn't get past the first argument. What's the argument? The argument is, he says that the world is, I don't know, a zillion years old, and the Torah says that it's 6,000 years old. So I asked him a couple of questions. First question is, where does it say in the Torah that the world is 6,000 years old? Where does it say? Anyone know? 
He doesn't. Now it's known, it's the Mesorah, Chazal says, that's 5,777 years old, whether it's from the first day of creation or from the first day of Adam coming, you know, being created, there's a machloket, but nonetheless, it's a masoid, but it's not an actual literal verse in the Torah. So I asked him, where does it say it? He's like, I don't know, you know. So I said, wait a minute. So, you didn't read the Torah? He said, no. So I said, how do you know you don't believe it? Already decided, I don't want to believe something, but you never read it. Okay, next question. Next question is, what proof is there that the world is, I don't know, a million years old, a billion years old, 10 billion years old, whatever number you want, scientists throughout there, some say it's 50 million years, some say it's 13.4 billion years. From my experience, the ones that have the more years have more grants. They have more funding from governments. But what, what actual proof is there that the world is 13.4 billion years? He's like, what do you mean? There is carbon dating. We have carbon dating. I said, okay, but the problem is with carbon dating is that already over 30 years ago, it was proven to be a flawed system. Why? Several reasons, but one of the biggest reasons why all dating systems are flawed is because they all depend on an atmosphere that stays stagnant, meaning the temperature of the atmosphere has to stay the same. They're assuming that there has to be, the environment has to be the same then as it is now. now obviously, one thing we do know for sure is that the temperature of the atmosphere has changed. That's actually one fact we do know. So already that throws out all dating systems, and there's also other proofs against dating systems. But nonetheless... I didn't really go into that battle with him, but I told him, okay, but who says that uh, it's 13 billion years old or whatever? He goes, no, it's a, this is a scientific theory. I said, yes, but you do realize that theory, by definition, in the English language or any language you want to choose, means theoretical, a.k.a. educated guess. It's a theory. He goes, no, 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 it's a fact. I'm like, okay, so why don't you say it's a scientific fact? Because they call it a theory. So yeah, because it's not a fact. It's a theory. It's a guess. It may be an educated guess because they're using different facts or different theories that seem like facts. But nonetheless, if you ask any real scientist, they will all tell you that this is theoretical. It's a guess. Even if it's a really, really good guess that cost them over $500 billion to make. It's still a guess. And we've been going back and forth for the last 24 hours, arguing not about the age of the world, not arguing about the existence of God, not arguing about Moses, not arguing about Avraham Avinu, not arguing about Brit Milah, not arguing about Masor, not arguing about anything. What are we arguing about? The definition of theory. The argument ended before it started. But why is the argument still going? Because he refuses to accept the truth. It's like, yeah, but scientific theory means different than theory. And I said, why is scientific theory mean something different than theory? 
because it's scientific. But what if I just added instead of scientific theory, I said cooking theory, or archaeological theory, or anything else? All the scientific next to the theory means is that it's a theory, an educated guess that's relevant to science. That's all it means. Doesn't mean anything else. If you have any other mathematical theory, physical theory, uh, a uh, I don't know, some type of theory. It's a theory that's relevant to that subject. That's just the, that's the English language. I can't help you here. And we're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. He just refuses to get it. And he sends me all these different long, drawn-out uh, uh, papers. And within like 30 seconds, I find something wrong, you know, like my thing. I was like, okay, look, even in your papers, it says, although a scientific theory is more than a traditional theory, if proven to be false, it changes. Which is the definition of theory. If it was fact, it can't change. If it was fact, it cannot change. It's factual that I'm here. That can't change. I can leave, but it will never change that I was here right now. Ever. That's a fact. What I'm thinking about right now, that's theoretical. That's in your mind what you're thinking, what I'm thinking. You could think that I'm thinking about what I'm talking about, or I could be thinking about, I don't know, Sufganiyot that come up in uh, Hanukkah in a few months or something. That's, that's a theoretical. That's your thinking. Maybe he's thinking about Sufganiyot. Maybe he's thinking about what he's going to say next. But that can change. Why? Because if I told you now, listen, honestly, throughout this whole time, thinking about Sufganiyot. So now, your idea, your thought, that I was really thinking about this argument, changed because I just gave you a fact. I'm telling the truth. I thought about Subhaniyot. You understand? So that's why it's a theory. But the fact that I was here, it's not a theory. It's a fact. It can't change. The problem is, the emunah that a person has, the belief that a person has, that he was created with, is so strong that even if he's wrong, it is nearly impossible for him to change it. If someone has a predisposition to believe in something, it is almost impossible for him to change that belief unless he sees no other way for his existing belief to remain true. Meaning... Uh, unless you completely shatter his belief, there's no way he's going to change it. And sometimes even when you do shatter his belief, and he changes his belief, he won't tell you. This is something that's very common that we deal with, both with Baal and with converts. A conversion, as I've talked about in previous lectures, is not very easy. The actual process of conversion in general is very, very simple. You learn a few things, just like a Baal Tshuva needs to learn the basic halachot of how to be a Jew. The converts needs to know how to be a Jew. It's the same thing. They don't, it's not like there's a separate teaching for the Baal Tshuva as there is for the converts. It's the same thing. Both of them are learning how to be Jews. And both of them are actually becoming Jews. Why? Because the Baal Tshuva, before he became Baal Tshuva, before he started keeping Shabbat, according to the Rambam, Alachot Shabbat, chapter 30, he was considered a Goy anyway. But not a good Goy, a bad one. An idol worshiper. 
So he's converting without the Beddin. But nonetheless, both of them are learning the same thing. They're just learning how to be Jews. Learning what to do in the morning. You wake up, you say, Modeani. You go wash your hands. You have to remember, do I do it like the bread, three on right, three on left, or do I do it like the bathroom, one, 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 one. You have to remember these things. Then you finish, then you open the Shachar. Thank you, Hashem, for this. Thank you, Hashem, for that. Thank you for this. Thank you for that. Thank you for not making me a slave. Thank you for not making me this. All these things. Another difference between the Baal Tshuva and the, uh, the convert. The Baal Tshuva says, thank you, Hashem, for not making me a goy. The convert can't say that blessing. Why? Because originally, before he converted, Hashem really did make him a, a goy. Well, goya. So they're not allowed to make that blessing. And it's very, sometimes some, some, uh, some converts take this offensively. Like, how come I can't say this blessing? Well, it's a good thing. You actually did something better than a Jew. You chose to be Jewish. Makes you better. In Shemaim, you're better. Bemet. That's why in our Tfilach when we actually say the, all the, uh, the levels, the Tzadikim, the Skenim, and so on, before it says Alenu, before we says bring, bring the, the blessing on us, who does it say? Bring the blessing on the Geret Tzedek. On the righteous converts. It comes before the natural born Jews. So don't worry about missing a blessing. You have plenty of other blessings to make up for anyway. But nonetheless, the process of a convert and a Baal Tshuva is very, very much the same. The hatred towards them by some people that are ignorant fools is also the same. There are certain people that are religious from birth that hate Baal Tshuva. Just can't stand them. Oh, you're a uh, BT, they call them. You're a BT, a Baal Tshuva. Oh, what are you? I'm a, I'm a uh, what is it, uh, FFB, from from birth. You know, we, we all have acronyms. It's too, too much for us to actually say the whole word. This is one of the things that I hated in my life in, uh, in Wall Street. People talked in acronyms. Oh, I, do you have a CRM system? No, I have a TDS system. Well, yeah, what about the uh, TSS system? I'm like, what are you saying? Just say the whole thing. What, it's so hard for you to say client relationship manager? Takes just as much time. People are lazy. I hate acronyms. But anyway, that's really what our religion, unfortunately, is also becoming like this. There's a lot of acronyms. So BT and FFB and uh, I don't know what they call converts, but I'm sure there's some type of term for them too. Um, it's all foolishness, all nonsense. But unfortunately, sometimes you have people that are from from birth that hate Baalit Shuvat. They just can't stand them. Part of the reason is because Baalit Shuvat tend to be much more zealous for Hashem. Not always, but they tend to be much more zealous for Hashem, much more serious, much more kavanah, which makes the from from birth feel bad about themselves. Why? Because the from from birth, like, listen, I'm already praying 50 years. I'm used to the prayer. I know by heart. I'm used to it. It's like whatever. It's uh, part of the process. It's become robotic, unfortunately. And one of the biggest curses that anyone can experience in their own life is becoming used to something. It's mamash, a horrible, horrible feeling. Imagine you have a meeting with the king, but you're like used to it. So when you finally show up, instead of asking for the, the king to give you a world, to give you a country, to give you... Anything you want in the world, you say, can you just turn on the light for me? You have a meeting with the king, you fool! Can you turn on the light? Reminds me of a joke, this one fool. 
wants to arrange a meeting with the king. Now, king is a very, very busy person. He's not like me, you can just WhatsApp me. So it takes a year to get a meeting with the king. The guy waits a year, finally, he gets the meeting with the king. He gets to the king, yes, how can I help you? Listen, in our shul, where I was sitting, all these years I've been sitting there, there was a nail on the wall. The nail. Okay. Well, it fell off. And I wanted to put it back in, but the goodbye won't let me. So can you tell him to, to, to let me put the nail back? The king said, What? What was a nail made of a diamond? Nail made out of gold? What's so special about what you, you waited a year to ask me about this nail? Because no, you don't understand, Your Honor. 25 years I'm going to the shul, and that nail was right next to my seat, and I was scratching my back in the middle of tefillah with the nail. But then it fell off one day, so I don't have anything to scratch my back, so the whole time I'm doing tefillah, my back is itching me. And I can't think about praying, I'm thinking about my back. Can, can you put the nail back? This is us. This is no different than us. We have a meeting with the king of all kings every day. Shachit, Mincha, Alvit. You want to do it for the dut? You want to do learning Torah? You want to do Maasim Tovim? Hashem is everywhere. He's everywhere in your life. Why did He give you so many mitzvot? To give you many opportunities to meet Him. You have so many opportunities to meet Hashem. And what are you saying? Ah, again, this Netilat Yadayim. Wasn't enough already. I did it in the morning. Couldn't just go for the whole day. Can I just pray one time for the food and that's it for the whole week? Again, oh, I don't want to eat pizza. Why do you want to eat pizza? You love pizza. It's your favorite food. No, but this is Birkat uh, Amazon pizza. I want Mezonot pizza. How many idiots are in the world today? They don't want to eat the pizza because they don't want to do Birkat Amazon. No, no, no. I want to get the Mezonot pizza because it's a shorter blessing at the end. Anyone that actually understands the, the Gdula of Birkat Amazon simply by looking at Masechet Brachot. Take Gemara, Masechet Brachot. Over 10 dapim. 10 dapim are spent on talking about Birkat Amazon. Explaining to us the Gdula of, of Birkat Amazon that it's the number one blessing in all of Judaism. Higher than Shema Yisrael, higher than Filat Shema Yisrael. They obligate to do Tefillat Shemona and Shema Yisrael every day. Three times a day for Tefillat Shemona Yisrael for men, twice a day for Shema Yisrael. Women, on the other hand, only once a day. If they can do more, great, but they have to do at least once. Birkat Amazon is bigger than all of them. Why? It's the only blessing that's actually written literally in the Torah that you have to do it. Shema Yisrael is a implication where it's implied you're supposed to do Shema Yisrael. It's implied. It's understood you're supposed to do Shema Yisrael. It's understood you're supposed to do Amidah. Tefillah Shema Yisrael. We learn from Avraham Yitzhak and Yaakov. 
They were in the woods praying. That's when they prayed. But it's implied. It's not literal. Because of Mazon, it outright says it. You ate, you were satiated, and you blessed Hashem, your God. You must say a blessing after you eat. Gemara says in Brachot, anyone that enjoys anything in this world without blessing Hashem Barach is a thief. Who is he stealing from? Hashem. Go steal from your friend, don't steal from Hashem, you fool. What do you think? Your friend may be not known. Hashem knows. Now, Birkat Amazon was so big, so special. Who put it together? Anyone know? First paragraph. Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu wrote the first paragraph. We got the Mount Sinai. Moshe Rabbeinu. You have something in your hands every day. And the falafel uh, joint over there. Everyone has a falafel, they eat the falafel, the shuangma with the trina on their face. They forget the Birkat Amazon is like dusty. No one uses it. Everyone eats the falafel with the pita, with the lafa, with everything goes home like nothing. Like, oh, I don't have to pray for. I did Bakarishon, I did Motsi. I, uh, I blessed it in my mind. Every falafel, kosher falafel place, every kosher place, they have the birkunim. They have, you know, because it makes them look kosher. Problem is the customers don't really use it. Go tomorrow, check. You're gonna go next time you go to a falafel place. Go look at the uh, bikonim. I bet you anything you want, it's dusty. Why dusty? Huh? Half the time you can't find them. Because even the Balabai doesn't know about Birkat Amazon. As a matter of fact, one of the things I said in one of my Hebrew shiurs a while back, any Balabai. Any owner of a restaurant that wants to be smart, smart, would make a special deal for any customer that does Birkat Amazon in his restaurant. Why? Because what happens? Every time a customer does Birkat Amazon in his restaurant, he brings the Shekhinah, he brings, a, he brings blessing to his place. You're turning your restaurant to a mini Bet Mikdash. You bring in the number one blessing in all of Judaism to your restaurant. Now everybody makes a big deal. You go to synagogue, we're in a synagogue, there's Sefer Torah, there's Siflet Torah, there's Gemara, there's this, there's that. It's a big deal. We come, we pray. Oh, come on, you have to honor the place. We have Amidah here, we have Shuret Torah here. Great, oh, it's wonderful. But I'm telling you, you have the number one blessing in the entire Torah. You can bring it to your restaurant. Non-stop. Every time a customer does it, you bring in the blessing to your restaurant. A family does it, you bring in the blessing to ten people. You have this happening all day, your, your restaurant turned into a kolel. Why wouldn't you give them a discount? A dollar off, ten dollars off, whatever. Everybody in their own business. The point is to try to encourage your customers to do because they're Muslim, even if they don't want to. They'll want to get the discount. Place that way we do things for lack, without really wanting it, eventually we'll want it. And what ends up happening to the Balabite, not only is he bringing all this blessing to his restaurant, on top of it, he's doing Zikwe Rabin. He's doing Kiruv. It's causing other people to make mitzvot. 
אין חטא בעל ידו. כל המזכה הרבים אין חטא בעל ידו. Everyone, anyone that makes other people make מצוות, sin doesn't come upon him. Who's better than you? What did you do? You bought Bitcoin, tell the guy, listen, you bought Shawama $8, $9, or in today's world, I don't know, $50, however long my Shawama is today. $10, okay, I'll give you a dollar off, just do Bikat Amazon. Really? What do you care if I do Bikat Amazon? I'll give you a dollar off. What do you care if you do Bikat Amazon? Okay, fine, I want a dollar off. But in order to do that, the Baal Abayt has to have Emunah. He has to believe that Birkat Amazon really did come from God. He has to believe that the Panasah did come from God. He has to believe that the customer is coming from God. Without having that Emunah, everything I just said, deleted. Goes one ear, the other, deleted. No Emunah, you have nothing. First paragraph, או ברכת המזון, according to מסכת ברכות, משה רבנו. גדול הדורות, the prophet of all prophets. The only person the Satan was scared of. Satan, מלאך המוות. גמרא says, you can't beat him. בראתי Satan, בראתי תורת תבלין. The actual מלאך המוות, Satan, the יצרה, is so big, He's full of eyes, scary as can possibly be. First, he entices you to sin, Yetzirah. Then after you sin, he goes to Shemaim, he's like, look, 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 look what Shlomi did. Look, look, he just ate taref. He goes, tells on you to Hashem. Mastina lecha. And then after the punishment of Shemaim comes from Shemaim, hey, take him. Who's the one that says, hey, hey, what's your name? In your tomb after you, Shemaim, someone after 120, As soon as the neshama leaves their body, who takes the neshama out? The satan. As soon as that neshama comes out, who starts hitting that neshama on the head? The satan. He asks him, what's your name? From all the shock that the neshama went through, he forgot its name. Zgula, to remember the name, by the way, is in Tfilat Amida. There's a verse that you have to read right before the end. A verse in the Torah that begins with the first letter of your name and the last letter of your name, and ends with the last letter of your name. If you don't know it, tell me, I'll send me a text. Bezot Hashem, I'll get a few. But to remember your name. So this Satan, this Yetzirah, this Malach HaMavit, Hashem says, I created him. He's bigger than you. He's smarter than you. He's stronger than you. You can't beat him. You can't beat him. The Torah, it can beat him. What do you mean Torah can beat him? Torah is a book. Book, book, these books, all these books. What do you mean beat him? If you learn Torah with Mesirut Nefesh, you comply with what it says. You're not one of these kofrim that reads the Torah like it's a Harry Potter book. Like one of these people says, no, 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 I don't think, uh, I don't think you, um, this Rambam is right. What? No, I don't think Rambam is right here. I think he made a mistake. Rambam made a mistake. Oh, you, you in the year 2017 for the Notzrim. The Christian calendar 2017, you, Mr. Jones, you, the whole world around for 6,000 years, or according to your scientists, 60 million years, everyone's an idiot until you came. No one knew, no one asked this question until you came, and the Rambam 
He didn't know either. 900 years ago, the person was considered, even today, one of the most extraordinary people that ever lived. Philosopher, scientist, mathematician, doctor, renaissance man. His shoe was smarter than you. You're saying he was wrong. His shoe, his shoe that he threw out in the garbage, is smarter than you, but you're saying he made a mistake in this halakha. No, because you don't understand. All these heroes, everybody wants to be a little mini Rashi. Everybody takes the book. No, no, I don't think that's what Hashem means here. What do you mean? It's what Rashi says. Rashi says it's what he means. No, I don't think Rashi's right. You don't think Rashi's right. Do you know anything about Rashi? Do you know that there's only a handful of places in the entire Torah, in the entire Torah, in Gemara, Mishnah, Chumash, Tanakh, the entire Torah, there's only a handful of places where Rashi says, I don't know. I don't know what Hashem means here. A handful of places. What does it mean? That everywhere else, he does know. And he wrote it. Now let me ask you a question. If you know so much information, you're an engineer, you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're a whatever... You know all this information. You're a genius. There's like five things you don't know. It's a hundred million things you know. It's five things you don't know. Five things, whatever. Big, small, doesn't make a difference. No one even knows that you don't know. Because no one else knows. Are you going to tell the truth? Hey, by the way, I don't really know. Or are you going to say, you know what? Let me just fib on this one. I'll make it up. They don't know anyway. They don't know if I'm right or I'm wrong. Let me just fib. Everything else they know I know. I'm the man. It's five things. I don't really know. Let me just fib. Let me just make it up. Yeah, yeah, dinosaurs were there. What? Dinosaurs? What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, no, it was uh, right next to uh, Australia over there. There was a little area for dinosaurs to hang out. What? How does it have to do with Moshe Rabbeinu? Don't worry about it. It's fine. I know, I know. He just made it up. He just made up a whole story. But no one knows because no one else knows. In today's world, even if someone doesn't know 50% of the material, they'll still make up to 50%. Not 5%, not 1%. If they don't know 50%, they'll still lie and say they know. Why? Because the ego is so big, they can't live with themselves telling people or knowing that other people know that they don't really know. Because it's not acceptable not to know. This is why many times when I have meetings with people, and you start asking them questions, within about, I don't know, a minute, a minute and a half, I know if the guy's full of it or he's an honest person. What's the tell sign? I mean, Bo Hashem, I spent a lot of time with a lot of people throughout my life. You get to learn how to read people. But how do you know if someone's full of it or not? If they keep nodding their head, say, yeah, I know, I know, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, yeah, I know. Oh, you know everything. Everything you know. The the, the whole world is sitting in the palm of your hand. Like this. You have everything. You know everything. What do you need me for? Why did you hire me? Why did you give me $40,000 for the trade we did last week? Why? 
You know, I used to deal with this in business world. I tell the guy, yeah, I know this company. Tell the guy, yeah, I know, I know. Oh, in this company, yeah, I know, I know, I know. So why are you hiring me then? If you know, and it's the same thing in religion. Start talking to body about the I don't I know, no, Moshe, yeah, yeah, Moshe, Moshe, yeah, I know, no, Moshe, Moshe. Oh, you know Moshe. Okay, good. I won't talk to him. Yeah, no, I know, I know, I know. Okay, so why did you come to the shield if you know? Why don't you teach? You know everything. It's not that he knows. It's that he's embarrassed to tell you that he doesn't know. He's embarrassed to tell you that he doesn't know. One time I was in shul, and we're waiting for the chazan to start. Of course, there's people talking all the time, during the prayer, before the prayer, after the prayer, they're talking. So these two older guys sitting in front of me, I guess they're having just a private conversation, but you can't help it, you hear over here what they're saying. So I was like, oh, so did you go to the shiur? The guy said, yeah, yeah, what is shiur? Because how was it? He goes, yeah, you know the usual, I pretended like I know what I'm talking about. I pretended like I know what he's saying. This is what they're saying to you, both of them, like 60, 60, five years old, older men. This is, what they, this is the exchange. And that's when I understood, I'm like, wow, it's not different in the business world. No one knows anything, but everyone says they know. Why? Because everyone's embarrassed to tell you, I don't know. But that's the gedula. You want to know how significant a person is? How smart a person is? How honorable a person really is? How often does he say, I don't know? How often does he say, I don't know? Why, he knows. If he knows, he knows. But if he doesn't know, is he defensive? Is he dodge you? Do you ask him a question, he just like answers a different question? So, this happens in the Baal Shuba, in the religious world, as well in the conversion world, where a lot of people have a very, very difficult time coming to terms with the fact that they don't know. Now, once they've come to terms with the fact that they don't know, the world shattered. Someone that believed in J.C. Penny their whole life, and all of a sudden they see that the book that the hero in the book is J.C. Penny, the New Testament is full of stupidity and nonsense, and anyone that knows how to read and actually reads it will see that it's wrong. Problem is, most people don't read it, or they don't compare. And that's also manipulative work by the church. Why? Because the church tells you, listen, this is the New Testament, which is a continuation of the Old Testament, meaning they're part of the same thing. Problem is, they don't teach the Old Testament, a.k.a. the Torah. They just teach the New Testament. They'll say a few things that they'll highlight that serve their purpose, like the vagueness of Isaiah chapter 53, the vagueness of some of the prophecies, even the vagueness of Parashat Bereshit, where Hashem says, let's create man in our image. Moshe Rabbeinu came to Hashem and says, what do you mean our image? How many gods are there? There's one. People, these kufrim, are going to say, look, our image, there's multiple gods, Hashem said, write it. How many times did I write in the Torah that I'm the only God? That I'm the first and I'm the last? How many times did I write? The whole Torah. So this one time I wrote in our image, the Kofim, if they're going to use this, let them use this. Because if it's not this, they're going to use something else anyway. 
So once you show a person, hey, listen, you know, you learned the New Testament your whole life, and you're saying that you believe in the Old Testament, but you never actually read it. You know in the Old Testament it says that Yaakov Avinu came down to Egypt with 70 people. In the New Testament it says 75. In the Old Testament and the New Testament there's different addresses for the Marat HaMachpelah. And so on and so forth. There's 800 different proofs against the New Testament that anyone that actually reads it, see, hey, this is pure nonsense. Problem is most people don't read it. And sometimes someone has the merit where Hashem says, you know what, you're looking for me, you'll find me. And he shows them the truth. Someone that's actually looking for Hashem, Hashem fulfills His will. Chapter 4 of the book of Deuteronomy, Hashem says, if you look for me with all of your heart and all of your soul, you'll find me. But only if you look for me with all your heart and all your soul. Sometimes you have a Christian that's looking for the truth. He wants to know, listen, is God really the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac? Or it's J.C. Penny? Is God one? Is God three? Is Moses the prophet of all prophets? Or is J.C. Penny the Mashiach? All these things that are contradicting each other. What's true? Shem says, if you're really looking for me, you'll find me. I'll show it to you. But that's only if you're looking for me and you're not looking for an excuse. Because a lot of people are looking for an excuse. Why an excuse? Why would anybody want an excuse to believe something that's false? Even if they know it's false, they'll continue living that excuse. They know that it's nonsense. They know it doesn't make sense, the New Testament. Anyone that actually reads it, knows a lot of things don't make sense. Anyone that's an atheist knows it doesn't really make sense to be an atheist. A lot of atheists, many of them, even though they're fools, they're still smart people, they're intellectuals. Many of them are intellectuals, they're educated people. But there's no bigger fool than them. Because they're fooling themselves. But why do they continue fooling themselves? Because it serves their purpose. As long as I believe in atheism, or in Christianity, or in Catholicism, I can do whatever I want. I don't have to pay any bill. I don't have to have any feeling in my heart that it's wrong. One time, there was a priest... There was a womanizer, and he went with this married woman. Then he hears the door of the house open. The husband's home. Immediately he runs into the closet. He sits in a closet, dark closet, and all of a sudden he hears a little kid voice saying, Wow, it's dark in here. He sees his little boy next to him. doesn't know what to say. Yeah, I guess it is dark. You want a baseball bat? No, no, I don't need one. No, it's only 200 bucks. Priest like, 200 bucks for a baseball bat? I can buy that Toys R Us for $10. Oh, okay, let me just go out and tell my dad that it's only worth $10. No, 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 no. Don't tell your dad anything. Hey, it's 200 bucks. 
He gives him $200. A week later, same thing happens. He goes to the same woman, Hashem Yachem. The husband comes back. He runs into the closet. Little boy's in the closet again. Wow. It's dark in here. That's oh, this kid again. Because now you have my baseball bat. I mean, you definitely need a glove. It's only four hundred dollars. It's four hundred dollars. It's thirty dollars in the store. He goes, okay, I'll tell my dad. It's only worth it. No, 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 don't tell your dad anything. Four hundred bucks. I brought it with me, cash, no problem. Take it, kid. Go, go. Shh. Don't say anything. A week later, the father goes to the son, looks through his drawer, he sees six hundred dollars. Son, where'd you get so much money? Oh, Abba, I, uh, I sold my uh, dad. I sold my uh, my glove and my baseball bat. He goes, what? I bought both of them for thirty dollars together. He goes, yeah, but I sold to some guy for six hundred dollars. He goes, oh, that's a sin. You have to go to church and confess. Okay, 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 Dad, I'm gonna go confess. He goes to the church. He goes into the booth. He sits into the booth, and he says, "Wow, it's dark in here." And then. Priest on the other side. Oh, you again! The key is when someone believes it, it justifies his life. All he has to do is a few Hail Marys. All he has to do is put some ash on his head once a year. All he has to do is give money to the church, buy them a plane, buy them a ship, buy them whatever they're pitching today. And that's it. You could be Hitler and still go to Gan Eden, as long as you believe in J.C. Penny. So continuing that belief serves them good. Your question? No. Same thing with the atheist. As long as they believe in nothing, they believe that they can continue living their life without having any type of difficulties with their conscience. This is no different than the secular Jew. Because many of these secular Jews say, no, no, I believe in God. I go to, I go to Bignesed once a year, Yom Kippur. Sometimes I even go for Pesach. Once in a while I go for different holidays. Oh yeah, but you don't keep Shabbat. You don't keep this. You don't keep God. I go, no, no, God understands. He knows we're a weak generation. It's like, yeah, but let me show you that he actually doesn't understand. Let me show you that not only does he not understand, but he's very, very upset. Proverbs chapter 14 sorry chapter 15 verse 8 says zevach reshaim to'avat Adonai u'tfilat yesharim retzono to'avat Adonai derech rasha u'meradef tzedakah ye'av musar ra'a la'ozev 
אורח שונא תוכחת ימות. The offering of the wicked is an abomination to Hashem. As we all know, we learn in the book of Haggai, last chapter, 14, since there is no better mikdash, there is no more offering. There is no more korbanot. What we replaced our korbanot? Our prayers. You doing Shkiyat Shmaim, Beknesset in the morning, you doing Amidah, that's your korban. That's your offering. So he's saying here, in essence, the prayer of the wicked is considered an abomination to Hashem. It's considered disgusting to Hashem. But his desire is the prayer of the tzaddikim, of the upright. Someone that keeps mitzvot, he wants his prayer. The rasha doesn't keep anything, he says it's disgusting. A lot of times they tell the people, listen, someone that goes against Hashem, his prayers are considered disgusting to Hashem. He goes, nah, come on, Hashem loves, Hashem is merciful, Hashem is good. Yeah, Hashem is all those things. But if you're his enemy, you have a problem. I didn't make it up. This is one of the sources, one of many sources. The way of the wicked person is an abomination to Hashem, but he loves a pursuer of righteousness. Because the things that a wicked person does is disgusting to Hashem. But someone that's looking for truth, even if he's still making sense, but he's looking for the truth, on his path, he goes, that's what he wants. He wants the Baal Tshuva. He wants the person that's looking for the truth. Even if you started in the wrong end, you're looking for the truth, I want you. Stern discipline awaits the one who forsakes the path. And the one who hates rebuke will die. So someone doesn't believe in Gainom. A lot of rabbis in today's weak world say, no, no, there's no such thing as Gainom. There's no such thing as punishment. Hashem loves, Hashem is good, Hashem is wonderful. Yeah, Hashem is all those things. But he's no friar. He's not, a, he's not someone that's a fool. Hashem forgives. But he doesn't just let go of things. And he specifically says here, stern discipline awaits for those who forsake the path. Make sins, you're going to get punished. Bottom line, this is what it says. You make a sin, you ate chazir, you're going to get punished. You stole, you get punished. You charge the Jew interest, you're going to get punished. You forgot to do triyat shema, you're going to get punished. You don't feel like fasting on uh, Yom Kippur, you're going to get punished. The one who hates rebuke will die. Why is he doing? What does it have to do? What does one thing have to do with the other? What does it mean, die? Yeah, Chazal has explained to us. Up to now, we said, listen, I hate the ways of the wicked. But if they're looking for the truth, I still want them. Looking to do tshuva, I still want them. But someone who doesn't want to be rebuked, doesn't want to be told, listen, Mechalel Shabbat Mot Yumat. That's just what it says in the Torah. Someone that goes, Eshed Ish, En Lochelek Lolam Someone that goes with a married woman, that's not his wife, has no share of the world to come. You don't like hearing it? It's too bad. Hashem said it. What do you want me to tell you? You don't like hearing it? He says you will die. What does it mean you will die? No share of the world to come. The grave and perdition are exposed to Hashem, surely the hearts of men. 
This last part is the scariest one, even though it sounds the nicest. It says, even what goes down in the grave, Hashem knows. We, Hashem, the 120, you bury somebody, that's it. Bury, you don't see nothing. It's done. You have memories, you have tears, you have sorrow. Best thing you can do is see a picture of things that happened in the past. Hashem is telling you, I even know what goes on with that body in the grave. The maggots are eating it, the snakes, the worms. I know what's going on. I'm making it all happen. You don't. If I know all this that's happening in the grave, you don't think I know what's happening in your heart? You don't know. You don't think that I know whether you have kavanah when you pray or not? You came to the Beknesset really because you feel bad, because you don't want everyone to think that you're not religious. Not because you care about the meeting with me. You gave stakah, not because you really wanted to give stakah. You gave stakah because you wanted to show off in front of a shiduch. You want the girl to like you. You want the guys to like you. You want everyone to think you're a big gvir. You don't really care about the aliyah, you don't care about the tefillah, you don't care about anything. Shem says, I know what's happening in the grave, I know. You don't think I know what's going to happen in something that's already outside of the grave, your heart? So here's one major place where we see Hashem is not very fond of a situation where someone continues to be a sinner. But even more so, In the book of Jeremiah, Hashem explains to Jeremiah, why did I punish Am Yisrael so much? Sins they've always made. But excuses is something that's intolerable for Hashem. You said you couldn't keep Shabbat because you didn't feel like resting. You couldn't not work. You had to go work. You had to make money. Hashem, listen, Shabbat's not for me. I got to make money. I'm a barber. My main money is on Shabbat. I'm in the car business. My main money's in Shabbat. I'm in that business. My main money's in Shabbat. I have a meeting with China. They only work on Shabbat. I can't keep Shabbat Hashem. I'll keep everything else. I'll give Tzedakah. I'll give you even 20% of the Parnas Hashem. Like you're doing him a favor. You forgot the verse that says, Liyah Kesef Liyah Zahab Na'um Hashem Tzavahot. You forgot the verse that says, Hashem says, Mine is the money, mine is the gold. And everything is His. You forgot that verse. Okay. It says, I'll give you 25% Hashem. But I got to work on Shabbat. Hashem says to Jeremiah, he had an excuse. He had to work on Shabbat. But how does he justify the vacation he went to Las Vegas on Shabbat? He didn't work there. How does he justify the vacation he went to Cancun or Cuba or Israel? All these other places for a week and a half which included Shabbat. How come he didn't have to work then? How come he didn't have to work then? How come only on my Shabbat he has to work? 
Excuses were the reason I punished. Excuses. Now, Ben Yonah talks about the evil eye as if it's a cancerous jealousy, meaning it's a disease. He says, he calls it in the Sharet uh, Shuva. He says, one who isn't happy with his lot in life is constantly viewing others with envy and has an insatiable desire to usurp their wealth and position. So the first thing is a simple meaning, as we already talked about. Someone sees someone else, he's eating his heart. The Gemara Masechet Sukkah says, no man dies with even half of his desires. He wants a hundred, he's going to die with fifty. He gets to a hundred, he's going to want two hundred. says, no man will ever die with even, with even half of what he actually desired. Second step is, the object of his envy is likely to suffer a loss as a result of the evil eye. And the perpetrator will also be emotionally scarred and suffer endless heartache as a result of his unquenchable thirst for that which is destined not to be his. It says the fact that he's so jealous of somebody else, that's coming from a lack of emunah, he just can't face reality that Hashem did not decree for him to have it. He's going to have the 4 by 4 you're not going to have. He's going to be a millionaire, you're not. Why? I don't know. It's Hashem's world. You're going to tell him how to run it? And you know when you ask Hashem a lot of questions, eventually he's going to say, okay, come, I'll come answer you. He takes you to come answer, to get you the answers. He says you, Rabbeinu Yonah is saying, all of this envy, it's not only causing suffering to the other people that you're hurting them with your evil eye, but you yourself are slowly killing yourself. You're eating your heart non-stop. You just got a million dollar deal, but you're upset that your nephew just got a thousand dollar contract from somebody. You have a million dollar deal, but it's upsetting you that your little nephew sold a thousand dollars worth of raffle tickets. What do you care about a thousand dollars? You have a million dollars. Yeah, but how could he do it? It's not worth a thousand dollars. How did he do it? How did he... What do you care? What do you care so much about other people's pockets? That's the nature of someone that has jealousy in his, in his blood. Third step. The person's inner world will eventually be completely destroyed from all of this consuming jealousy. Slowly but surely... His whole world is collapsing. He can't live with himself just because of this jealousy. He stops doing things for himself just because he can't tolerate other people's happiness. Their happiness causes him unhappiness. It's not that he's unhappy. Like He has plenty. He has enough money for 50 generations. Them being happy is killing him.
But the Rambam says a chidush. The Rambam says that the evil eye that the Mishnah is warning us against, really what it is, at the root of it is being stingy, being cheap. One who is stingy never enjoys life because he's always afraid that he's on the doorstep of poverty. The guy has 50 million in the bank, but he's scared to give tzedakah. Now, Baruch Hashem, this was not one of my tests, but one of the things that, there's two things that I personally can't stand. And I think anyone that knows me for more than a few meetings probably already knows this by now. There's two things. I can tolerate a lot of things. I can tolerate angry people. I can tolerate all types of people. But there's two things I can't stand. It's my mom, it's my tikkun. It's my tikkun, I can't. I can't. It's, it, it disgusts me. One is liars, and two is cheap people. It's something that's my whole life I've been struggling with this. Now I remember, as a young person, one of the biggest nightmares in the world was going out with the guys. Why? No one wants to pay. Everyone went out to eat. We all ate. You have a restaurant. Everybody orders. You're not saying, listen, give me my own bill. In those days, you didn't do stuff like that. Just everybody order. You order this, you order this, you order this. At the end, there's a $500 bill. All of a sudden, no, no, I didn't eat. What do you mean? I just saw you with the meat. It's still dripping from your mouth. No, no, no. I just, I took from his plate. I took from his plate. Okay, but, okay, but I didn't drink. What did you drink? Just water. Yeah, I drank only water. I didn't order a drink. All of a sudden, everyone has every excuse in the world of how they're not supposed to pay what they're supposed to pay. This used to drive me crazy to the point where I stopped going out with anybody. Now, once I got to a point where I had my own money, I had a different solution. I just paid. So, in the beginning, it was fun. I go out take my employees out, friends, whoever it was, and a check would come, I just take the check, I pay the check, and that's it, we go home. No battles, he owes 50, he owes 100, whatever the bill was, 1,000, 2,000, 5,000, didn't make a difference. With plenty of money, we just pay the bill. But eventually, you start getting to a point where you realize they're only inviting you because they want you to pay. Not because they want to hang out with you. So one time, what was my uh, final straw? There's one time I went to a place, and we're supposed to enter this Shem Achem, this some club or something like that. Hashem, Hashem, forgive me for my sins. And they all, everyone knows you go to a club, you have to pay. It's not like free. There's no like, hey, this is a free place. You go to a club, you have to pay. You have to, there's an entrance fee. All of a sudden, no, no, because there's 25 people, no one wants to pay. And they're arguing back and forth, arguing, no, no, yes, we're going to pay, we're not going to pay, pay, pay. I'm like, just give the guy, he's a few hundred dollars, Look, let's go already. I'm not going to stand outside in the freezing cold for five hours. Just pay the guy already, go. And everyone's looking at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, what's wrong with you? I'm thinking, what's wrong with me? I'm thinking, what's wrong with them? But then, the last time, then I realized, okay, this is, I have to start picking new friends. So I stopped hanging out with those friends. And then one last time, someone invited me to go out and join them in a restaurant. 
and they were already eating before we got there. But apparently they thought about us in the middle. I found out later why. And uh, oh, there's maybe ten of them, five different couples or something like that. High-end place. We go, we sit, we join them. And as soon as like the night gets a little later, all of a sudden everybody starts to like walk away. Slowly but surely everyone goes to the bathroom. And I'm left and then the little waiter comes and he gives me the bill. For like I don't know, like a couple thousand dollars or whatever it was, fifteen hundred dollars or whatever it was. But no one's there. And then I wave to them, like, hey, hey, what's going on? He goes, No, no, I didn't eat. I didn't eat. That was, that was the final straw. I said, oh, you didn't eat? Okay, no okay, whatever. Money that never meant anything to me. But the problem is that people love their money so much that they're willing to act mamash like thieves, animals, and disgusting human beings for it. They're willing to do anything for it. Now I thought maybe, you know, okay, this is the business world, money world, maybe they really didn't have money, maybe, they, whatever, I start coming up with different excuses for different people. I figure out, maybe in the religious world, people have God. You, if you have God, you have Emunah, obviously. You know that Hashem is the one that's giving you the money. It's not your money. So I figure out, a religious person, the last thing he's going to be is cheap, because he knows the pun, that's not really, comes from Hashem. No, my friends. Just because somebody's religious does not mean they're, they're, they're very generous. I have a guy, just to give you a brief story. Guy calls me, da da da, whatever, inspired by the story, inspired by this. Hashem, great. We don't ask for anything. The key is to motivate Amisai to do tshuva. If, if that's something that uh, Hashem is going to give us the schut to do with anybody, with their frum and our frum. Oh, Hashem, that's the goal. If someone wants to donate, donate. So the guy tells me, yeah, listen, if you want to come, come. You could always come to my house and you could do lectures in our neighborhood. You could do lectures in our community. I said, okay, great. Sure, yeah, you know, one day, you know, a lot of people ask me to come and, you know, we have to arrange it. We have somebody has to sponsor the cause and, you know, I have to also figure out a schedule. It's not, it's not exactly easy for me to travel, but there's other Sure, no problem. He goes, no, no, but listen, we have a very big house. We have a very, very big house. And there's enough room for you and your family and whoever, whoever else you need. I'm like, okay, fine, fine. I'll just think about it and I'll let you know. No, no, but you don't understand. We have a big house. And he tells me about how big his house is. Fine. Oh, I'm not homeless exactly. Fine. I got a big house. What do you want for my life? And we live, and he tells me the place that he lives, I'm not going to mention, and it's one of the richest neighborhoods in America, or communities in America. Definitely no poverty there. He said, okay, fine, no problem. Because, yeah, but listen, with anything else that I can do, I was really excited, this guy. And I love excited people. Like, oh, yeah, anything else you do? I'm like, yeah, listen. If you want, you can, you know, sponsor the cost of some CDs. You can donate for our cause. We give a lot, 99.999% of everything that we do is free. We give Kiruv packages that are each anywhere from $100 to $200 for free every day. 
We make videos for free. We uh, give CDs for free. Hundreds and hundreds of CDs. We give lectures for free. Everything's free. It's not really free. It costs money. But the people that usually enjoy most of the stuff, they enjoy it for free. Either because they don't have money or they wouldn't pay for it because they don't really know if it's good or not yet. Whatever the point is, Hashem pays for it. If you want to help us, our budget for this year is supposed to be $740,000. How are we going to get it? Hashem has to find a way. We have to do what he says. Hashem has to find a way to pay for it. You want to join? You want to be a partner? Shecha. We have these uh, double CDs. They're just coming out now. Bezat Hashem. We just uh, we have CD number one, CD number two. But now we're having it in a package. CD one and CD number two in the same package. Really cool looking. And Baruch Hashem, we uh, just placed part of the order. We're trying to raise another hundred thousand dollars. We continue giving tens and tens of thousands of them for free out every single month. Because not just the lectures that we give these CDs out in, we also send them out to different places, different communities. And most of the time, when we send packages out, you get asked, Sonny, because we send out packages practically every day, nobody pays. I'm just looking for people that are going to give them out. Okay, he's, you, you can give out 300 CDs, I'll send them to you. Oh, you have to pay for them? No, you don't have to pay. If you want to pay for them, pay for them. The key is give them out. 300, 500, 1,000, 2,000, every CD is a dollar. Now you have a double package, it costs more money. Somebody has to pay for it, that's what pays for it. So the guy says he has a big house. We're going to go back to the guy with the big house. So he's got really excited about what you do and this and that. Wow, it's amazing. Okay. You want to help? Help. You could sponsor some CDs, I don't know. I mean, I don't have to, you can't be any more clear than that. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, you know, we made some commitments, but no, no, I'll, I'll figure out something. I'll figure out something. No problem. I'm not going to send you any bills. Do what you got to do. I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't follow up with you. You want to donate? Donate. What do you want to tell you? So now, when I was a little kid, for whatever reason, Hashem gave me this like, crazy idea that anytime I see somebody that's in need of money, I would grab anything that's in my pocket and the first bill that would come out, that's what I would give them. If it was a dollar bill, I'd give them a dollar bill. If it was a hundred dollar bill, I'd give them a hundred dollar bill. It didn't matter whether I was rich, poor, irrelevant. It's just some crazy thing that came into my mind. That's what I did. That's the way I've been living for over 20 something years. Sometimes it worked out really good. Sometimes not so good. But that was my rule. I guess even as a chiloni, I had a little bit of emunah. Maybe. But the point I'm trying to say is that as a little kid, I always knew that 20 bucks or 100 bucks is not a lot of money. Even when you're 15 years old, whatever, maybe to get sneakers is 100 bucks, but it's still not really a lot of money. It's 100, it's 100, maybe it's a lot of money to a 15-year-old kid, but it's not. But even the 15-year-old knows it's not a lot of money. It's not like Abbas Card, that's 100,000. It's still 100 dollars. But as a 15-year-old, if you gave 100 bucks for something, it was ours. Big for you, but in reality, you knew it was not a lot. I have a lot of people, Baruch Hashem, that donate. Most of the people that donate don't have much money. But they mamash do mesirut nefesh. They give me the only $20 they have. The only $50 they have. The $100 they have. But Baruch Hashem, a few people that have a little more give more. But the point is, most of the donators don't have much money. But this one guy, why am I telling you this story so long? But this one guy, mamash, was a tikkun for me. 
After 25 minutes of this guy explaining to me how big his house is and how he wants to host me and how wonderful is this and how wonderful is that. And he says, I want to help. Who's better than you? You have a big house. You have the money. You're excited about what we're doing. And you want to help? I'm like, to the house. I'm already thinking, great. Maybe we're going to meet our budget this year. Who knows? We're only 95% away. few days later, I sent them some free CDs, whatever. A few days later, I get my notice on the PayPal, $10. $10 from this person. I'm thinking to myself, it was better if you didn't give. It was my much better if you didn't give. To me. Oh, Hashem, you get $10, 10 CDs. It's not the same somebody does tshuva. But to me, it got me so upset. I'm like, after this description of this multi-million dollar house, he told me, he gave me $10? $10? But then you go back to the Torah, and you realize a few things. First and foremost, we had a whole shiur about how to do kiruv. You have to have schut. Hashem will not let everyone do kiruv. Why? Because as it says in the book of Jeremiah, in If you bring a precious from something that's rotten, you will be like my mouth. Meaning, if you make somebody do tshuva, someone who is a rasha, you make him into a tzaddik. Someone's mechalel Shabbat becomes a shomer Shabbat. Someone that goes out with a goya, now he goes out with a tzaddikah. Someone that went out with an Arab, now she's going out with a Jew. Someone that was going out with somebody else's wife, now he's becoming a kosher person, goes to call it all day. Someone that wanted to commit murder last week, this week he's already doing tshuva. You bring somebody to do tshuva, you get somebody to do pichet amazon every day. You're already helping him do serious tshuva. Hashem says, You'll be like my mouth. What does it mean you'll be like my mouth? Chazal explains. Hashem says to the tzaddikim, Just like I am the creator who brings back the dead, you will be the same. You bring somebody back to me, you bring back one of my children home, that's been lost for 30 years. Your blessings, your prayers, your words, your VIP treatment. It'll be like I said them. Where even so, even if there's a decree from Shemaim, someone Hashem Elohim is supposed to die, a Kiruv person prays for them, changes the decree. Shem says, okay, I said... Technically, his time was over, but this Kiru person who helped thousands of people do tshuva is praying for him. What can I do? I made a deal with him. I made a deal with him. So Hashem says, listen, I don't want to give this deal to just any joker. I don't want to just change my decrees every day just because this guy, Zerashami Rusha, 50 years, he goes to the casino, all of a sudden he gave 10 bucks to a... Uh, to a Kiruv, all of a sudden I have to listen to him? Why? 
No, he's not going to donate to Kiruv. His ten dollars is going to go for toilet paper. His fifty thousand dollars is going to go to a Purim party at Chabad. It's not going to go to Tshuva. It's not going to go to somebody coming back to me. Why? He doesn't have the schut. Doesn't have the merit. Now, what is the next part of the Mishnah? It talks about all this Ainara, all of this jealousy. What's the main thing that's causing you to get this rotten cancer to stay inside? First of all, to let it in in the first place. This jealousy, this lack of emunah, this safik, this doubt. Not only do you have it in, what makes it stay there? Mishnah says, Yetzirah. Yetzirah is connected to the Ainara. So Chazal asks, where does it say in the Torah that Hashem created Yetzirah? Anybody remember a verse in the Torah that says Hashem created heaven and earth, created the Water, the clouds, the beasts, the chickens, the this and that, all that created Adam, and he created also Yetzirah. Next time, any verse? Anybody remembers that verse? No, right? So in the Gemara, Masechet Brachot, page 61. It says in the Bereshit, in, uh, in Genesis, chapter 2, verse 7. Says my dechti vayitzer Hashem Elohim et Adam b'shnei yudin. What is the meaning of that which is written in Scripture in the verse in chapter uh, in Genesis two seven, where Hashem God formed man? There's a verse that says Hashem created man, but the word created, the word formed, instead of having the typical one yud, one letter yud. It has two. Two yuds. It's like almost like there's a spelling error. Chas v'shalom in the Torah. Now we know there's no extra, even a yud. The smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, we know have not even one extra one. But here there's an extra one. In the written Torah, there's an extra yud. So Gemara says, what's this extra yud? Why is there an extra yud? Ah, answers. Shnei Yitzarim Barak Kadosh Baruch Hu. The double Yud is employed to allude to the fact that the Holy One, blessed is He, created man with two inclinations: Echad Yetziratov, Echad Yetzirah. One is the good inclination, and the other is the evil inclination, because Yetzir is with the Yud. So now there's two yuds. Yetzeratov, the good inclination. Yetzerah, bad inclination. So that's why he says when he formed, he formed with two yuds, good and bad. In addition to this, Rabbi Shimon ben Pazi 
says, Oi, why is there two yuds? It says to signify, Oili mi yotzri v'oili mi yetzri. Woe unto me from my creator, and woe unto me from my evil inclination. My creator is Yotzri, my creator Yotzri. Yitzri is my inclination. Why woe? Woe unto me for my creator who is sure to punish me if I succumb to my temptation for my evil inclination. And woe unto me from this evil inclination that's causing me to suffer when I don't listen to it. So if I listen to it, woe it want to me from what Hashem is going to do to me if I listen to Him. But now listen to Him, He's beating me up Himself. This Satan, this Yetzirah. Rav said... 61A still, Brachot. The Yetzara Domel is The evil inclination resembles a fly. I said this, I think, two weeks ago in the Shiul in Miami. V'yoshev ben Shnei Miftechei Alev. And he sits between the two gateways of the heart. It's a fly sitting on your heart. Now there's a couple of explanations of why. The Pshat here is saying, As it says, The flies of death corrupt and putrefy perfumed oil. Meaning, oil is beautiful, clean, amazing. The fly is gross. Five minutes ago he was on poop. What does he do? He wants to come into the oil. You have a beautiful neshama, it's clean, you just did chuvai, late filin, put kisui rosh, you just finished, finished maseret brachot. What happens? You leave the place, 15 imadis girls waiting for you. All of a sudden you became popular. What happens? Guy gives you an opportunity to cheat the government. What happens? Guy gets you angry on the, uh, on the highway and you want to tell them how you feel about it. Says the fly is sitting on your heart all the time. You just did good. You did just finish Maseret Bachor. You just finished Tefillah. You just got out of the Bekneset. He's a fly. He's not leaving. Especially when you're clean. Especially if you're doing good. The cleaner you are, the more he wants to mess with you. Why? Because if you're dirty, you're making sins all day, isn't it? You're already doing his job. He doesn't have to do anything with you. He goes, you're already going to the strip club, Hashem Elohim. I don't have to go. I don't have to do anything. You're already doing the job for me. You're already cheating. You already own a bar. You already own this. Which reminds me of another story. Another guy came to me, maybe eight months ago, six months ago. Guy is very, very rich. At least that's what I heard. First lecture he comes, he comes to me after the end of the lecture, he tells me, listen, amazing, that the dog gives me all the compliments in the world, like a Moshe Rabbeinu. He goes, listen, I want to be partners. I want to sponsor, I want to this, I want to that, I want to ta-ta-ta-ta, tell me what's the, di- 
There's no problem. You just tell me what you want. No problem. The next day I had another lecture. He also came. Oh, it's a good sign. Usually they run away after the first lecture. Guy comes to the second lecture, even more amazing. Whatever, listen, I'm getting ready, the money. After that, never heard from the guy. Disappeared from the face of the earth. First he wanted to donate. Shem only knows how much. They tell me he drives a Bentley, he drives a Zentley, he brings all, all this garbage. He's worth a hundred million, two hundred, whatever he's worth. Even if he donates fifty thousand a month, what's it to him, right? All of a sudden, disappears off the face of the earth. Not even ten dollars. This guy, at least, with the big house, gave me ten dollars. The other guy, nothing. Nothing. Disappeared. Disappeared off the face of the earth. And I'm thinking to myself, Hashem, why? Like what? I mean, this. I could do so much more kiruv with a budget. Oh Hashem, we have an amazing team all over the world. We're doing so much skew. Tens of thousands of people from all over the world are watching the Shuim every week. Just one of the movies, Baruch Hashem, the science movie, over 100,000 views. 100,000 views, Vimesh. The Tzaddik does more cure than anybody else in the world. The guy never sleeps. Team Hashem is working non-stop. People are watching the Shuim. They do tshuva. They convert with no budget. Say, if I have a budget, wow. This guy wants to donate. Why? Why not let... Then I find out that Hashem is always right. Why? Where is the hundred million dollars? He owns clubs. He has a kippah though. Kippah, Shema Shabbat, Tefillin. Goes to Beknesset, learns Torah. Learns Torah, he says. He learns Torah, he learns a little bit every day. But he owns nightclubs. You think Hashem is going to let somebody like that, Machti Arabim, to donate for Kiruv? You know how many sins he's responsible for every single day? No, no, but it's only uh, clubs. It's just a business. I don't go there. You're responsible for millions of sins every moment you're alive. You want Hashem to give you the merit to give people, bring back people to do tshuva? You're lucky you're still alive, Bichlal. No, no, no merit. No merit. No schut. Tohavat Hashem. Disgusting to Hashem. But what is this? This is the same fly that's on our heart for our Yetzirah. Same on his miskin. He thinks he's okay. Keep Shabbat. Got the tefillin. Got the kippah. Got the this. Got the that. Everything is great. Tzaddik. Donates money to Beknesset. He has his own Beknesset. He's got his own Beknesset. He even asked me if I want to be the Rav of the Beknesset. I rejected the offer. I don't want to be the Rav of the Beknesset. Not for me. But the point is, same fly. His, our fly is a little fly. We read a little Torah. Yetzirah comes, tries to ruin it. Him, he scan, he scan the guy, he scan the guy. He thinks he's a tzaddik. He doesn't even know the fly is on the heart because the fly is parked there. He made a home. He doesn't even fly away. He just sits there with the clubs. 
You know how much wasting seed there is in these clubs? You know how much drugs there is in these clubs? You know how much prostitution is in these clubs? You know how much Tavat Hashem is in these clubs? The DJ looks like a tzaddik next to the owner of the club. Sixty-one B, last part of this Yetzirah part, says the righteous are ruled entirely by their good inclination. The Yetzirah Tov. As it says in my heart, the evil inclination has died within me. King David said this in Psalm 109, verse 22. King David got King David got to such a decree, such a degree. He said the evil inclination yet It's not in me anymore. Not that he just left because he did a bunch of tefillah shmonaisli. He overcame his inclination to such a degree that eventually the Yitzhak says, I'm wasting my time with this guy. Which reminds me of a story, Mama, something that's out of this world. Rabbi Zusha, one of the giants, tzaddikim in history, he's one of these people that is one of the few in history that could literally took the Yitzhak to school. He was an animahud, complete poverty. But he didn't care about anything. He had complete emunah. He knew everything is from Hashem. No interest in material. No interest in this world. All he wanted is Torah. But he had three daughters to marry them. He said, you have to have 300 rubles to marry your daughter. So what he would do? He went to his rav. For the Rav, which was one of the major Gdoleador, I forget his name, that continued the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov. He says, For the Rav, I need 300 rubles, what should I do? He goes, Don't worry, I'll get it for you. Don't worry, you're a big tzaddik, you're a big tamit chacham. Don't waste any time going to collect tzedakah. I'll raise the money for you and I'll call you whenever it's ready. You go back to learning Torah. The world needs your Torah. No problem for the Rav. One continued learning to learn poverty. Short while later, the Rav calls him to come. Here, the 300 rubles. Oh Hashem, everything in its time. Takes the 300 rubles, he comes back to his town. On the way to his town, he sees there's a whole balagan happening in the market. And he asks somebody, what happened? He goes, oh, miskena, this widow finally married her daughter away. She found him a kala because nobody wanted to marry her because the, you know, they didn't have much money anymore because the husband died. Finally, she found a mate for her daughter. They were going to get married. And then she lost the 300 rubles that she needed to marry off her daughter. And now the Khatan, his family won't let her marry her. Which is, by the way, one of the biggest problems in the religious world and non-religious world today, where the parents mess up weddings constantly, and, and marriages. This is why. This is also part of the reason of why it says Parashat Bereshit, why it says that Hashem told them, the uh, man must leave his parents' home to be with his wife. It's also the reason why in the Gemara Masechet Brachot it says 
that Hashem created man and woman together. Why? Originally they were attached. Man and, man and woman, it's unlike the story that we know, which is like Hashem created Adam, and then he took his rib, and they made the woman. Chazal actually says that there is an understanding that originally Hashem created them back to back. Adam was in facing one direction, Chava was facing the other direction. Meaning he created them both together. Why? To know that you're supposed to be together. You, husband and wife together, not the uh, husband and the ima, and the husband and the abba, and the, the daughter with the abba. No, husband and wife together. So anyway, Miskena, this widow, lost the only money that she has for her daughter to get married. Rabbi Zusha says, oh, no, no, don't worry. I found it. What do you mean you found it? I found the money she lost. I found it. I found it. It's over here next to the tree. I found it. Now he's not saying I'm giving it to you. I'm giving you my money that I don't even have. Say, I found your money. Why are you saying I find your money? Because he doesn't even want the credit to say that he's giving anything. Oh, thank you for finding it. He goes, yeah, but listen. I found the money for you, so I want a fee. I know I'm coming. It's a mitzvah to return something that's lost. It's a mitzvah. You have to. Ma'abah Metziah talks about how you have to return something that's not yours that belongs to another Jew. It's an obligation. It's not a, you don't get a fee for it. But Rabbeinu Zusha, one of the Gidolei Adol, says, no, no, I want a fee. I want a 10% fee for returning what's yours. The people of the town, like, you are a tzaddik, you are a rasha. You're returning something that's hers and you want a fee for it? What kind of, on top of it, she's a widow? You're taking advantage of a widow? You're collecting a fee for something that's not even yours? Rasham and Rushad, they started beating him up. Now the Rav over there heard of Rabbi Zusha. He knows his Rav. He says, listen, I've always heard good things about this Zusha guy, but he's a Rasha. I have to go tell his Rav. That he really is an undercover Rasha. He wants to collect a fee for something he's obligated to give for free. So he went, traveled to his Rav. Listen, I'm sorry to tell you, but your student is a Rasha. He goes, who's student? He goes, Rabbi Zusha. He goes, why is he a Rasha? Tells him the whole story. He goes, no, no. You're not understanding. He goes, well, what am I understanding? He didn't find the 300 rubles. He goes, how do you know he didn't find it? He found it. He goes, no, no, no. I gave him that same day the 300 rubles to marry his daughter. Now, I know that he's a tzaddik. He gave away the 300 rubles that I gave him. But why he wanted to collect a 10% fee, I don't know. Let's go ask him. So they brought Rabbi Nezusha. He says, why? He goes, yeah, it was the 300 rubles, the only 300 rubles that I had were the 300 rubles that you gave me. And I felt so bad for this woman. I knew for her, it's like pikuach nefesh. She was in such sorrow, crying for her daughter. There was mamash pikuach nefesh. I had to give her the money. Okay, tzaddik, great. Shemayim, it's probably celebrating for you. But why did you collect the 10%? It's not allowed. Why did you want to collect 10%? It's not allowed. He goes, because after I gave away the 300, I saw some things in Shammai. They said 
the mitzvah that I made was so big that even Hashem Barach was dancing and celebrating the mitzvah. Hashem Barach was celebrating how I overcame my own midot to give something for, that was supposed to be for my own daughter to this stranger and not even take credit for it because I said I found it. Okay. It's like, yeah. But then immediately the Yetzirah showed up. And he started telling me, look what a tzaddik you are. Look what a tzaddik you are. Once you tell your Rav what a tzaddik you are, you're going to be the Rav. I said, oh, let me show you something. So to make sure that no one gives me credit, I went and asked for the fee. So they can embarrass me to such a point that the Yetzirah never comes back and tells me I'm a tzaddik again. That's someone that took the Yetzirah to school. Yeshayim Yetzirah Shoftam. So just like the good inclination controls the tzaddikim, for the Yeshayim, the evil inclination takes control over them. As it says, King David says, In my heart, evil speaks to the wicked. Saying, let there be no fear of God before his eyes. So what's the, how do you know if it's a rasha or not a rasha? Now, someone at tzaddik, people look like tzaddikim all the time, you don't know if it's tzaddikim. Someone's a rasha, unless he's a mass murderer, you don't know if he's a rasha. So King David gives us a big secret here. When someone is a tzaddik, how do you know? By his deeds. So you see somebody's chasing chesed all the time. He's trying to do chesed. He's trying to help people do tshuva. He's trying to pray all the time on time. He's trying to do all types of things. You see his actions. You see how he acts. It's very easy to see if he's doing good things. If everyone talks bad about him all the time, obviously he's not doing good things. But if you see the guy is constantly chasing mitzvot, that's sign of a tzaddik. If he's wearing a big hat, doesn't mean he's a tzaddik. If he has a big beard that goes to the floor, it doesn't mean it's a tzaddik. But if you see him chasing mitzvot, there's a good chance it's a tzaddik. Fine. But what's the sign of a rasha? Unless he's a mass murderer, how are you going to know he's a rasha? Because like I said, sometimes a beard also means it's a rasha. So Osama bin Laden also had a beard. It's free. How do you know he's a rasha? David Amelech tells us something very, very scary here. He says, what's his, what's his evil inclination telling him? It says, the evil, the, uh, the uh, evil inclination tells the, the, uh, the Rasha, don't be afraid of God. No Yerat Shammai. You have no Yerat Shammai. You have no chance of being a Tzaddik. The sign of a Rasha is when there's no Yerat Shammai. He's definitely not a tzaddik. What is a confirmed 100% rasha? We don't know. But he's definitely not a tzaddik. And then this Gemara ends with saying, Benonim shoftam. Average people are ruled by both. Most people, average people, they're both yetzara. Yetzara tov. As it says, God shall stand by the right of the poor man. And save him from the rulers of his soul. 
אמר רבא כגון אנו בלונים, רבא says by this yardstick, רבא is one of the תנאים, one of the people that's able to bring back the dead. He says based on these standards that technically you have the Yetzirah and the Yetzirah Tov, you have sometimes you do good, sometimes you do bad. He goes, us, he says about himself, we're middle. We're in the middle. If they're Benonim. So now, once someone understands how much this Yetzirah can cause them, how much evil can cause them. If you look at, if you remember, we went over Masechet Shabbat, page 105 last week, or two weeks ago, where it talks about how the Yetzirah takes, away, takes over a person. First, it causes the person to act, do something out of the ordinary. What does he do? He gets upset, he expresses his anger. Sometimes it's in words, but sometimes it gets physical. So it says, so the first thing, he's taking it too far. Rabban Yochanan says, Rabban Yochanan ben Nuri says, One who tears his garments when he's angry. Takes his clothes and he just rips them because he's upset. Then he breaks, or someone takes a utensil and breaks it. Takes a, some type of utensil, throws it against the wall. Or someone takes all of his money, throws it in the air, gets upset. Like somebody gets in a, is on tilt in a casino. He's upset, throws all the chips, and, you know, on a table. Gemara says, one of these people that do this, in your eyes, they should be considered 100% performing idol worship. So the Gemara asks, how could this be idol worship? The guy just took a spoon and threw it across the room. What do you care? The guy ripped his own shirt. He didn't rip your shirt. He ripped his own shirt. The guy took his money and threw it. Well, how is that idol worship? It says, because these are the crafts of the evil inclination. These things, he's only doing them because the Yetzirah is in control of him. Where today, it's telling him to do this, and tomorrow it's going to tell them, go to the church, go to the reform synagogue, go to the idol worship, go to the things that are 100% against Hashem. Why? Because the Yitzhak is in control of him. Initially it was just control of his mind. Now it's in control of his body. Shortly, he will take control of all of him and do the things that Hashem hates. To such an extent... Where he will do the one main thing that Hashem hates more than all, idol worship. The last but not least, it says that when someone fails at all of these, Hashem, he has the Yetzirah, the Ainara, he has the jealousy that's killing him, it's killing his life. He has the Yetzirah that's mamash, just controlling his life. He can't look right or left without doing something bad, it says these things lead him to get to a point where he hates the Briot, he hates everyone. 
Why does he hate everyone? What do they do to him? He blames everyone for his problems. You ever meet these people? They have a miserable life, but they're blaming everyone else. They don't want to blame themselves. It's never me, my did it. No, 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 my teacher failed me. Well, why didn't you study? He wouldn't have failed you if you would have gotten 99 on the test. My wife left me. Well, if you were nice to her and actually bought her flowers once every three years, maybe she wouldn't have left you. If you didn't cheat on her, she wouldn't have left you. If you didn't yell at her every five minutes, she wouldn't have left you. If you weren't so cheap, she wouldn't have left you. No, it's her fault. Oh, my brother doesn't want to talk to me. Yeah, if you didn't steal half of his business, he would talk to you. Did you forget you stole half of his business? I had one of my students call me. He says, listen, 15 years ago, I made an investment with a friend and I trusted him. We both invested in a small company. Invested $1,500 each. Nothing. Small money. Lo and behold, almost 15 years later, the stock goes up. It's worth $160,000. So I tell him, listen, I'm ready to get out. He gives me a check for $2,000. Now I know I have half the account. Why is the check for only two $500 profit instead of $80,000 profit? What happened to the other $79,000? Because no, there was lawyer fees and there was taxes and this woman stole from me and this other thing and all long song and dance of why he's not entitled to his own share. And then people wonder why Hashem punishes them with poverty. Why Hashem takes away everything they have. He takes the profit and the principle at the end. They want to know, why did Hashem take all my money? Why? Because you're a thief. It didn't belong to you. You stole all of it. That's why he took it. Baruch Hashem, a student has a lot of emunah. He says, listen, I'm not even going to assume. He said, yes, and you go take him to a bedin. He goes, no, I'm not even going to do that. Chazak He goes, yeah, I know that whatever Hashem wants to give me, I'm going to get like, it's not the same they make more of you. Somebody like that has such a munah. Today, people have munah, stops at money. It's mamas. So people make so much, such a big deal out of money, it's, uh, it's very sad. But, it's true. So someone blames the world for his problems all the way to the point where Shem Achem he hates everyone. It takes him out of this world. What does it mean it takes him out of the world? A person can get to such a point where idol worship becomes okay. Doing things that are against Hashem becomes okay. He's become so familiarized with the Tavat Hashem, with the stuff that's disgusting to Hashem, that he gets to a point where he starts desiring it. 
where instead of desiring to do the will of Hashem, desiring to do mitzvot, desiring to give tzedakah, desiring to do good things, what does he desire now? He desires all that's disgusted by Hashem. Everything and anything that he wants, everything and anything that he desires, is guaranteed to be hated by Hashem. And this, my friends, takes him out of the world, meaning takes him, removes the person both from this world and the next. The next is obvious. Someone has no share of the world to come when they get to a point where they become a Mechalet Shabbat, they start doing the things that the Torah talks about where he loses his world to come. But how does he lose this world? The Gemara says someone that has Gava, someone that has a high uh, level of pride, even his own family hates him. Even his own family can't stand him. They may say Abba, Ima, whatever, whoever the person is, because that's who they are, but inside their heart they can't stand him. I have a, I have a student that tells me, I can't wait to move out. I tell why? He goes, I, I hate my father. The guy do. He goes, oh, he's this. He tells me a story. I'm like, listen, I would hate him too. The guy is intolerable. I don't tell her this, but in my mind I'm thinking, wow, this guy is really intolerable. He's really a shock. And I'm praying for her to, to eventually leave her father's house. But if, if the guy, if I had a one-on-one or a Shem, the Abdi, for Shem, Came to him in a dream, sent an angel to him in a dream, says, Hey, listen, by the way, you know that your own children hate you? Like they really hate you. Like you are like their nemesis. What do you think the guy would feel? Think he would be okay with it? Nobody wants to be hated by anybody. Especially not your own children. But that's what happens. So to finish off. There was somebody that came out with a video saying that the this whole thing with the uh, idol worshiper coming to the Beknesset was a uh, not a big deal. Another one of these craziness situations that continues the story that should have never started. And this has a lot to do with uh, this Mishnah because... When someone has jealousy, that means they're already controlled by the Yetzirah. When someone is controlled by the Yetzirah, they start blaming everybody else for their problems. When someone is blaming everybody else for their problems, they're losing this world and the next world. We already learned this over the last couple hours, however long it's been. But the root of all of this is that to lose the next world, that's the outcome of all of this. But the beginning is the Yetzirah. The beginning is not having enough Emunah in Hashem, not having a good foundation. A good foundational connection with Hashem Yitbarach. Now if you remember in the previous Shurim, we talked about how it was very, very important to Chazal to explain to us several times, and he'll actually mention it again later on in the Mishnah, the importance of making yourself a rabbi. 
עשה לך רב וקנה לך חבר. If you notice, most of today's horrible situations, horrible stories of rabbis that are off the derech, they don't call themselves off the derech, but when people say their name, they, before they say their name, they say, Shem Rishayim Yerkav. Meaning, that they say, May Hashem blot out their name. Destroy their name. Before they say this rabbi's name, they say, May Hashem blot his name. Similar to what they say about Hitler. Yimach Shimo B'Zichro. And it's about rabbis. One rabbi wrote a book saying, Kosher Jesus. Where his entire community said this made a very big problem for Judaism because it's making idol worship look okay. Whether that was his his uh, intention or not is irrelevant. The point is he still came out with a book, made millions of dollars, saying there's a kosher version of Jesus. His own community threw him out. Another guy calls himself a rationalist, wrote a book about how the Torah is wrong, in essence, and whoever teaches it as such is wrong, where there isn't only four animals with a single sign. In essence, saying that pretty much everyone except him in the world is wrong, and he has proofs that there's mistakes in the Torah, and it's all subject to interpretation, if you will. All of the major G'dolei Ado signed a letter putting this so-called Rashal, uh, Rabbi, on Cherem. Another Rasha calls himself the chief rabbi of Ephrat, a city in Israel. About seven years ago, made a deal with the Christians and made a video calling, saying that Jesus is okay, and he called Jesus Rabbi Jesus. Why? Because during the difficulties that his city was dealing with, Jews were not supporting it, only the evangelical Christians were supporting it. So he sold his soul to the devil. But he called himself Orthodox Rabbi. His apology video was... Shameless. It was ridiculous. And then, so these happened over the last few years. Now we have a few others. One guy came out with a book that's turning many people that could have possibly been righteous converts into the shine. There's a lot of people at the end of times, Gemara Masechet Abu Dazara, page 4, says that there's going to be a lot of converts at the end of times. The good news about converts is that they're very, very good people. They love Hashem. It's Mesirut Nefesh. They want to get close to Hashem. They, they do it purely for emet, for truth. The bad part is, is that some of them are very, very vulnerable. And they hold certain rabbis to higher standards than they really deserve. And this idiot came out with a book pretty much calling all of Chazal, like every sage that ever lived practically, 
that ever talked about the subject of converts, that ever talked about the issue of the Noahides or Gerim, and pretty much said, you know what, everybody's wrong. And people that are not Jewish are allowed to keep Shabbat. Why? Because I have a Chidush. He decided he has a Chidush. The Rambam is wrong when he says that they're a non-Jew that keeps Shabbat, Chayav Mitah, gets death penalty, heavenly death penalty. No, 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 it's not the same type of ger. There's ger toshav, there's ger this, he's adding things, he has all this craziness in his book, it's mamash, causing more confusion than anything I've ever seen. But where is it causing confusion? It's not causing confusion amongst Am Yisrael, because Am Yisrael doesn't even know this book exists. They're not worried about converts. Where is, it, where is it causing confusion? It's causing confusion amongst the righteous converts and making many of them very, very angry at rabbis that don't accept this book, which is practically 99.9% .9 of all rabbis. Because it's full of shtuyot. It's full of nonsense. It's full of kfirah. That's why there's no rabbinical sign on it or letter on it saying, ah, this is a uh, kosher book. Nobody says it's a kosher book. Him and the other co-author say it's a kosher book, but nobody else cares for it. It's just a moneymaker. But it's causing so much kfirah that some of my own students, some of my own students that were good students, that were in the process of converting, now they said, no, you know what? I'm not going to convert anymore. I said, why not? Why are you not going to convert? He goes, no. This guy says I can keep Shabbat. That's really all I wanted. I want to keep Shabbat, I want to keep mitzvot, I want to keep everything. He says I could do it without going through the conversion process, without doing this, without doing that. I'm saying, yeah, but he's wrong. Because yeah, but he's a rabbi, he's going to pay for it. So now you have to like go back with these people, miskinim, they're much poor people. Now of course everything is from Shamayim, if they're, if they're, you know, if this is happening to them, they deserve it anyway. But this is all, why? Because people are selling their soul for money. They're selling their soul to the Satan himself. For books, for speeches, for all types of shtuyot. This is no different than what happened with bringing the missionary. Whether there's money involved or not, I don't really know. And I'm not going to speculate. But anyone that agrees with the situation is clearly misunderstanding the halakha of what Amin is. Amin, as we talked about in the shiur, is someone who's obsessed with Avodah Zarah. Someone that is constantly chasing Avodah Zarah. Now, so someone says, yeah, so that means that uh, if somebody tells, he made a video and he says, no, but uh, Amin is only a Jew. It's only relevant to a Jew. As it says in the Gemara Masechet Chulin, he writes, he says in his video, Masechet Chulin, page 13, um, there's no such thing as a mean amongst the idol worshippers, meaning it's only relevant to Jews. And one of the other guys that's a you know that's like I don't know his buddy agrees with him. Yeah, see, see, he's wrong, see, he's wrong. You know, they made a whole party of is the problem. If either one of them actually went over the Gemara fully, the very next few words show them they're wrong. Why? 
It says, En minim be'umot uvdei kochavim. And later it says, Ema en rov uvdei kochavim minim. Ela min agavoten be'yeden. Says, what, there's no idol worship, there's no minim among the idol worshippers? Because no. Most of the idol worshippers are not minim. The idol worshippers, but they're not minim. They're just following the culture of their fathers. Meaning, somebody says, wait, if you're saying that every idol worshiper is a mean, then all of the Christians in the world are minim. Which means that we can't be within six feet of every Christian. But that's not what we said. We said we're not allowed to be next to a mean. What's a mean? A mean is a missionary. A mean is someone that is bringing other people to idol worship. So he says here specifically, most of the minim, it's not that there's no minim amongst the uh, idol worshippers, is that most of the idol worshippers are not minim. Most of the idol worshippers are just doing what their parents said. Their parents were Christian or Catholic. They're Christian and Catholic. They're not going out there and saying, listen, come to Christianity, come to Buddha, come to Amalek, come to... No, they're not saying any of this. They're just, they believe J.C. Penney is a Mashiach. They believe, even if they believe he's a, he's a God, which is stupid... But the point is, they're still not bringing other people to it. Who's bringing people to it? The missionaries, the priests, the pastors, those people. Those people that are missionaries, they're meaning. They are people that are hated by Hashem. You're not even allowed to be within six feet of them. Six feet of them. Now, I'm going to finish this off with something that's going to shock you. What is a mean? To such an extent. The Gemara Masechet Brachot, page 29, says Chazal added a prayer to Tefillat Shmona Added a prayer, added one blessing to the 18 blessings, it's now officially 19, cursing the minim. Because in those times, in their days, there was a lot of people that were stealing Jewish souls. So they added a prayer cursing them. But they said, if someone is a chazan in a Beit Knesset, and you know after you finish Tefillat Shemona Yisrael, you have to do it again, out loud, in case somebody else doesn't know how to read. In essence, you're, he's benefiting out of your blessing, out of you repeating it. Which unlike mo- most people think, it's a time of quiet, not a time to talk. But if this Chazan, which could be the rabbi of the Keilah, if this Chazan could be anyone, if during the Chazara, if during the repeating of the Tefillat Shashmona, it's not the first time, where he did quietly to himself, during the Chazara, which he's not even obligated to do, during the time that he repeats it, for the benefit of the public, he forgets to say the blessing that curses the minim. Forgets. Not on purpose. Forgets. He skips it. What? You never skipped a blessing? How many times you skip a blessing in your life? He forgets to... He skips it. He's never allowed to be a chazan. Never. Why? Just because there's a safek, there's a doubt, there's a possibility that maybe he's a mean. Undercover. And he didn't say the blessing because he didn't want to curse himself. 
That's how much a mean is dangerous. And if that's not enough, my friends, you go to Gemara Masechet Avodah Zarah. There's a Maaseh with Ben Dama and Rabbi Ishmael. Ben Dama was a major Talmud Chacham. If you go to Gemara Masechet Menachot, page 99b, he comes to his Rav, Rabbi Ishmael, and he says, For the Rav, now that I've learned the entire Torah, anyone here can say, I learned the entire Torah? He comes to his Rav, he says, Now that I learned the entire Torah, can I go learn Greek wisdom? I learned the entire Torah, the Shas, the Gemara, the, the, uh, the Mishnayot, the Zohar, whatever you want, I learned everything. I learned it. I know by heart. Can I go learn some Greek? So already we know he learned the entire Torah. Which by the way, Rabbi Ishmael says, because it says, Im lo briti yomam v'alayla chukot shamayim lo samti. It also says, Vigita yomam v'alayla. You're supposed to, uh, the laws of the world will not exist without learning of Torah, without my covenant. And also it says that you have to come to the Torah, you have to learn Torah, Yomam Valayla, day and night. So unless you can find a time that's not day or night, you have to learn Torah. If you can find a time that's not day and not night, go learn whatever you want. It's like saying to a woman, you're not obligated. As long as you have a head, you have to do Kisui Rosh. If you don't have a head, you don't have to do Kisui Rosh. So Ben Dama knew the entire Torah. And he comes to Israel. Rabbi Ishmael. says, Rabbi Ishmael, I got bitten by a snake. I got bitten by a snake, Rabbi Ishmael. I have a cure. But I left it with this doctor that's a mean. I left it with the doctor that's a mean. And I can show you a proof if you just let me, give me the permission to go pick up the medicine from him. So I could not die. Go pick up the medicine from him. When I come back and I'm healed, I'll show you that I'm allowed to do it in the Torah. Because I know it says you're not even allowed to be within six feet of the mean. I will show you. I learned the entire Torah. I'll show you a raya. I'll show you a proof in the Torah that I'm allowed to go. So please give me the permission to go save my life. Pikuach nefesh. Rabbi Ishmael says, no, not allowed to go. Die. Die, but don't go next to Amin. Die, but don't go next to Amin, even if it's going to grant you more life for another hour. Now, if you remember what we've talked about many times for Shabbat, that's considered the entire mitzvot. It's the weight of all 613 mitzvot. If there's pikuach nefesh, someone has a life risk, you're allowed to violate Shabbat. It's actually a mitzvah to violate Shabbat. Mitzvah to drive to the hospital. Mitzvah to save a life. It's try to light fire if you need it. To save a life. So Shabbat, you're allowed to violate to save a life. But you're not allowed to go even to get a cure from a mean to save a life. Even if it's going to cause you to die. And they want to go bring him to a synagogue. 
And then after that, say, it was wrong to go against it. Just read the Gemara, read the Torah, and Bezat Hashem, we'll all do tshuva. Any questions? Baruch Adonai Le'olam, Amen ve'Amen.